Welcome to the Contractor Success Forum. Today, we're talking about qualifying for government set-aside contracts because we have our expert, Stephen Brown, with McDaniel Whitley Bonding and Insurance Company. And we also have our expert, Wade Carpenter, Carpenter and Company CPAs. And I am Rob Williams with IronGate Entrepreneurial Support Systems. So, Stephen and Wade, what is it about these set-aside contracts, and why is that so attractive for our guys? Well, from my standpoint, I do see people getting federal contracts, and a lot of times they don't know a lot of these things. So I'm hoping Stephen's going to enlighten a lot of people on these things, and maybe they can go down a different path. Uh, Lots of opportunity, I think, to be unique and, and, and stand aside, not be in the crowd, if you can qualify and get into part of that, right? Or Stephen, what are we even talking about here? What are these set-aside contracts? Well, we had a show on federal contracting, getting into federal contracting. Specifically, how do you do it? How do you get started? And the great thing about getting into federal contracting is the Small Business Administration has been charged with helping people learn how to do government contracting, how to get signed up the technical assistance to doing business with the federal government. And also in that episode, we talked about how the rules involving government contracting are all set up in the FAR Act, Federal Acquisitions Regulations. It's the rule book. And in the rule book, the FAR Act says that the Small Business Administration is charged with seeing that certain percentages of government contracting go to certain set-aside businesses. And you may be one of those set-asides, and if you are, you need to take advantage of this because the federal government, through all these set-aside programs, has benchmarked 33% of all their government contract, 50-plus billion dollars with a B, 33% to go to small business and small business set-asides. So that's what I thought I'd talk about a little bit today is tell you guys about what those set-asides are and what the qualifications are. And any questions, just let me know. No, I think that's great. I know Wade and I in our programs and our Profit First and our Pumpkin Plan, and we always talk about how you can be unique and how you can set yourself aside uh, to be different than everybody. So this gets you in a little bit smaller pool. So you're not just in there with everybody else bidding it. If you can narrow the number of bidders and the job scope, that theoretically should hopefully improve your margins and your jobs. And if you can get some of these jobs that land inside your expertise, your area of expertise, boy, that's that's something else. Stephen, I am kind of wondering, one of my first thoughts is also, do people see what these qualifications are, do they try to target their company to fall within those guidelines as well? Or, well, or is it just something that you see where you are and you just match it? Well, let me tell you about the different designations because sometimes you can have a lot of different designations all in one. And then you're even more valuable to the federal government and to another contractor that wants to use you as a sub and needs your certification in those small business standards. Would that help? You got it, man. Helps okay. a lot. Let's do it. All right. Let's start quickly just explaining about the number one thing is uh, we talked about getting set up on Sam. Rob, you were confused. <laughs> I love my Sam's car. They got these foot-long yeah, hot yeah, dogs there. That's Costco. Sam.gov. That is how you put your information in there. And then 
the NAICS code. So if you're like a heavy horizontal contractor doing, you know, pipe work and so forth, the NAICS code is 237990. Okay. So that's what you do. So don't go in there and find 80 different NAS codes. Put exactly what you do best because that's going to track you. That's how the government contractors track you. That's how the other contractors that need you as a sub track you. Put in what you do. That's my best advice. Okay, so you'd get that done. And once you put your NAICS code in, like general contractor code, then it tells you what your small business is and if you qualify. They take your sales over the prior three years, for example, $34 million. That means if you average $34 million in sales over the previous three years, you are not a small business. But if you didn't, you are a small business. So that's number one. You qualify as a small business. Then the other subcategories are, because 10% of the work is set aside for small business and small disadvantaged business. So small disadvantaged business means that 51% of the company is owned or controlled by one or more disadvantaged person. And that that person must be socially and economically disadvantaged. Again, there's a way that you click on a link to see if you are socially and economically disadvantaged. I know we all feel like we are that way all the time, but it's a standard set of rules. And so then you must also qualify for that size goal of being a small business. So that's called SDB, small disadvantaged business. So that's number one. And that doesn't just mean you're broke, right? That's just that you're maybe your situation in life or some situation that yeah, doesn't mean that, that you have no money. Makes it more likely for you to be disadvantaged. Got it. So the government just won't take your word for it that you're broke. Right. And you're socially and economically disadvantaged. Yes. So you can be rich and then still be qualified for that. Right. Yeah. You know, I feel that way every other day. But <laughs> nevertheless, so... That's the first thing. So are you a small business? And if so, are you a small disadvantaged business? Okay, the next category is, are you a woman-owned small business? They call it WOSB. And the federal government, just like the military, has acronyms for everything. So as you're learning and studying this stuff, know the acronyms. SDB, small disadvantaged business. Then woman-owned small business. And then there's a subcategory of that called economically disadvantaged woman-owned small business. WOSB contracts, 5% is the target for projects going to woman-owned small business. And guys, in government contract, you don't use the word projects. It's called task order award. Interesting. the name of a project. So let me point that out. The next thing on about woman-owned small business that you need to know is that 51% of the business has to be owned or controlled by women. Women manage the day-to-day operations and they make long-term decisions. And the economically disadvantaged is you've got to be a WOSB, but you also, you have to be owned by one or more women, each with a personal net worth of less than $750,000. And owned by one or more women with at least $350,000 or less in adjusted gross income averaged over the previous three years. 
and you can have no personal assets valued over $6 million. That's how they tell whether you're economically disadvantaged woman-owned small business. That's disadvantage if you don't have any assets over $6 million. That's a pretty hard bar to cover there, isn't it? <laughs> well, it really is. And you say, well, guys, how do I get qualified for this? And how do they track this? And it changes. Well, you got to get certified through the SBA, number one. And number two, because the SBA administers the program, you got to be recertified every year. So you got to give them information to prove these things and they are tangible and measurable. So yeah. any questions, guys? Well, I was going to comment because I've helped contractors both get the certifications as well as maintaining them and they will do audits. So say a, a woman on small business, they have to kind of come in and see that woman is actually actively making decisions and it's not just they put their spouse on there. Mm. They will dive into the day-to-day -day things that are going on on these things. They, they really will, Wade. And also, if your competitor contests a project by saying, hey, that woman-owned small business is not really owned and operated by a woman. It's owned mm -hmm. and operated by someone else, a, a husband or another entity. I've and, seen um, that. Before. Yeah, I've definitely seen that. Well, not only will they throw you out and penalize you and hit you with all kind of fines, but you will be banned from federal contracting. Mm. Banned. So it can put you out of business and all your affiliated companies. That's it's a great scary. point because I think a lot of people don't realize that, especially as they're getting in there like, oh, yeah, I'm just I, I put my wife on there is 51%. She'd never been to the office before, but she's yeah. on there. She's 51%. <laughs> Well, I guarantee you that wife is making long-term decisions about her husband, but they got to make long-term <laughs> decisions about the business. And that's usually a wife that is just actively involved in day-to-day -day operations. And I've seen some successful situations like that. Yeah. The wife drives sales. The wife pushes for the, the projects. It just depends on the gifts that the wife has, but nevertheless, Woman-owned small business is one category. Stephen, I, I just came from the world of asphalt, and there was the women of asphalt. It, it wasn't like a calendar. Not that they were very, very attractive women, but they were <laughs> in the women of asphalt, and it was so interesting to see that. And and I was wondering how they don't put out a calendar. Or... They they didn't. They didn't. Uh, you know, they should. They were cute. They were cute. Well, but that's not important. What, yeah, what no, that, that's... they had that booth and I was there and I was like, I was thinking about them and I actually gave them uh, some cards to our, our podcast here. So we probably have some of them listening today. So welcome I mean, which, women. Well, of hey, I, yeah, I in certainly which case didn't... you just turned all that group off. So no, <laughs> I, I certainly need, didn't mean to sound sexist when I said a no. calendar, but it, it does sound like title of a calendar. These women are serious about owning and operating and running their business. And they were. And women are not historically the prevalent contractors doing government work. So this is just a set aside to help a woman-owned business get started and get going. So we should probably have some of them on our show, actually, too. So, so if you're listening and you want to be on our show, Women of Asphalt, or something else, give us a call, contact us. Maybe we can have yeah. you as a guest. And women, don't be mad at us. We're men. We're idiots. So, you know, <laughs> we got three men. So well, if anybody's very serious about anything, they're not listening to our show anyway. Larry, Moe, and Curly here. We're, <laughs> we're on the entertainment scale here. But well, you, we don't you know, have valuable information. Well, you've got a good point. Okay, so women own small business. It's another category. The next one 
So we, again, service disabled business, SDB, woman-owned small business, WOSB, economically disadvantaged woman-owned small business, EDWOSB. So I'm going to keep trying to imprint these acronyms. And we're going to have these in our show notes too. All right. Veteran-owned small business is next. So the subcategory of veteran-owned small business, VOSB, is service-disabled veteran-owned small business. Service-disabled. So if you're a veteran-owned business to qualify, you've got to be at least 51% owned or controlled by a service-disabled veteran. This is administered through the VA, not the SBA. But what's interesting in 2023, it's going to move to the SBA. So there's just a point, but veteran-owned small businesses, 51% or more owned by a a service-disabled veteran, one or more service-disabled veteran is in charge of day-to-day operations and long-term decisions. And you must have a service-connected disability to be a service-disabled veteran. Mm -hmm. So 3% of that work is set aside for veteran-owned business and service-disabled veteran-owned small business. So Really, just being veteran-owned doesn't really get you the set-aside as much as the service-disabled veteran-owned small business. I've had contractors that you wouldn't think they were qualified, but they may have something like some hearing loss or something that really doesn't affect them. And and a lot of times they will qualify for things like that. So you just, I mean, I have seen situations where you wouldn't think somebody would qualify. Well, you know. People that have gone through Iraq and Afghanistan, they may qualify and they may not know it. So I just want to throw that out there. Yeah. Sure. They have to take advantage of it if you can. Yeah. You know, you know, all these acronyms and stuff, there's, I was going through our webpage the other day, contractorsuccessforum.com, and the transcript of this, it's probably not on your iPhone, but the transcript of this is on the website. So if you're listening in your truck, which most of our listeners probably are, you, you can go and get that information right there, contractorsuccessforum.com, go to the episode and, and get all this stuff in writing. So I know everybody's diligently taking notes and pulling over on the side of the road to write all this down. They don't have to. They can go to contractorsuccessforum.com and go to this episode and get that. Or go to LinkedIn to the Contractor Success Forum and ask us these questions again. Okay. All right. Keep going, man. Okay, next one. 8A program. 8A, what does that mean? The Small Business Administration set it up, and it's listed as 8A program in the FAR regulations. So 8A program is a special, right, this is a nine-year program. And basically, they consider the first five years of that program as a learning program, and the next four years is going out and doing program. That doesn't mean as you're learning, you're not doing projects. But they are setting aside in the 8A program, like we talked about earlier, Wade, $150,000 and less projects just to get you started, just to get you going. These are set aside in the 8A program. So, so everybody that's thinking about the racking the brains to try to think of what all 8As these are, this is not eight different As. This is Section 8A, right? Section 8A, Rob. Section 8A. Point. So Excellent I know point. all of our listeners are wondering, because I started wondering, what, what are the eight different A's? They're not. It's Section Okay, again, SDB, Small Disadvantaged Business, Woman-Owned Small Business, WOSB, Veteran-Owned Business, Service Disabled Veteran-Owned Business, SDVOSB, and then there's the 8A contract 
which 5% is the goal of government contracting to go to 8A contractors. That's a lot. Now, as you become an 8A contractor and you qualify, you also get a lot of technical assistance and education programs. There's 8A directors in every region, and they are in charge of your training and to make sure you get these projects. So talk about learning how to do business the government way. Becoming an 8A contractor is invaluable. And I've had so many contractors graduate from the 8A program, and it was a huge stepping stone in their growth. So the 8A program, in order to qualify, you have to be a small disadvantaged business, 51% or more of your company owned or controlled by a small disadvantaged business. And then you've got to have one or more small disadvantaged business owner do day-to-day operations and make long-term decisions. We talked about that. And you have to have a personal net worth of $750,000 or less, adjusted gross income of $350,000 or less, assets of $6 million or less, just like the economically disadvantaged woman-owned small business. You also have to be able to demonstrate good character and demonstrate potential in business of at least two years. So you've been in business at least two years. You've shown that you know your business your good character, you pay your bills more or less on time, and uh, you finish projects, then the 8A program is for you. And it's hard work, but the payoff is huge, and you learn a lot, and it doesn't cost anything. So please, if you fit in those categories, try to become an 8A contractor and talk to your bonding agent also about how that 8A designation can help you partner up with other contractors because other contractors that are not small business, they are looking for these people to partner up with because literally there's a participation percentage set in the contract that you get to take off the final fixed price if you are designated one of these. And then the last one is hub zone. Hub, like hubcap, hub zone. And guys, that stands for Historically Underutilized Business Zones, Hub Zone. I've actually done some of those projects before. Well, yes. I, well, you are it's you are either located in a hub zone, Rob. Yes. You know, your your business is physically located in a hub zone and 10% of all contracting business is uh, being set aside for these hub zone contractors. 10%. That's huge. I think you could get two different ways because I think we had two like one we were in the poorest county in Mississippi. My one business was, but then also the project I believe qualified. I think that was still hub zone because the project was there. Doesn't that work too? Or is that yeah, right? there is a, a map that you can Google and look up hub zone. You can see if where you live is in a hub zone, and the hub zones are set usually for economically disadvantaged part of the state that the governor sets up as mm-hmm. a hub zone. So you're going to see a lot of hub zones in there, guys. And it changes every... Um, yeah, our, our uh, Mississippi property would go up and down. I think we were right on the barriers. Oh, God, this year we are not in that percentage of the employment. We had to look in that. We'd be like a few dollars above whatever that number was or below it. As it yeah. Like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. I have a, a customer that's right on the uh, Tennessee Mississippi line, and, and they're physically in Mississippi. But if they were just 
literally a few hundred yards above the line, they would be in the hub zone for federal contracting. It's, it's sad, but true. But so what makes it hub zone? I told you how to look up to see if you're hub zone. 51% of your business has to be owned and operated by a U.S. citizen, of course. And then your primary office, your head location has to be physically located in a hub zone. Mm. And last but not least, 35% of your employees have to live in the hub zone. So those are the three criteria. So it's just not a matter of uh, bouncing around and moving your physical office into a hub zone. There's that employee qualification too. So guys, hub zone's huge. Yeah. I know, Stephen, you are talking about before, people are looking for contractors right now to partner with. And I'm just starting to see some of these, like from that infrastructure bill that passed here at the Atlanta airport, they're, they're giving out some of those contracts and they are begging people to work with them on these projects. And I hate to say it, but not all federal contracts are profitable. You still have to bid them, but this stuff is like, I hate to say stupid profits, but there right. are some great profits to be made in the right type of industry. So I think this has been great. Good. I had a customer with a project out of state and low bidder was 5% less than them, but they were rewarded it because they were hub zone and they had a 10% price preference. It's real. It's huge for federal contracting. So I'd like to urge our listeners, if you're not doing federal contracting work, to just look into it. Just learn a little bit about it. And as you do it, it's incredible. It's a step-by-step -step process of learning. And the fundamentals are easy to get into federal contracting, but mastering it is an art form. Just like construction accounting and construction business coaching, huh? That's right, man. Yeah. And bonding. Yeah. So uh, last point I was going to make too was we were talking about a lot of these contracts require certified payroll. And we did an episode earlier, I don't know, six months ago or so on certified payroll. I didn't know you wanted to comment on that part too. Yeah. As a small business, if you're doing projects under $50 million, generally they don't mandate that you have an approved certified job cost program in place. But you're not going to go very far if you're not. And if you do have that job cost accounting system in place, you are going to be, especially in something like a multiple award task order contract, a MATOC, then you're going to be better received because they know that you're professional enough to get them that information that they have to have. That's awesome. Great tips for our listeners and our contractors. More and more wonderful ways for our contractors to be successful on the Contractor Success Forum. That's what no we're problem. all about, guys. That's right. Building our profits and building our businesses and becoming more successful and profitable. All right, guys. Well, thanks a lot again. Anything else we got to add on this great government contracting set-aside contract show? No. All right. Thanks a lot, guys. And this has been the Contractor Success Forum. There are a lot of acronyms, so don't forget on this one in particular that we do have, if you're on like iPhone or something like that, you can go to ContractorSuccessForum.com and see the whole transcript on these episodes. Go to LinkedIn and, and look up the Contractor Success Forum and ask us questions about that. So uh, we're excited about that. So thanks a lot for joining the Contractor Success Forum today, and we'll see you on the next episode.